Welcome to the Gear Up podcast. Today we're going to be looking at wheels, specifically carbon wheels, specifically the best kind of wheels, the ones you can afford. Um, there have been a spate of inexpensive and quality wheels released this year. Lots of deep carbon hoops for under $2,000 from smaller brands like Hunt and Ron and Knight, um, as well as familiar names like Head and Envy. Um, today we're joined by Envy's VP of Product and Consumer Experience, Jake Pantone, who's going to be talking to us from Salt Lake City uh, to kind of get his take about carbon wheels, um, why they're actually getting cheaper, just kind of some insights into the wheel industry, um, and more specifically, why disc braking has some kind of hidden benefits to triathletes beyond just good braking. So thanks for joining us, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. Um, so we spoke a little bit last week about how disc brakes have actually changed kind of the face of the wheel industry in terms of, you know, lowering the barrier to entry. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, over the years, we, you know, we, we were founded in 2007. So, you know, in that time, road disc had not come onto the, onto the playing field yet. And, you know, all of our, well, a lot of our, um, sort of the intellectual property that we had invested super heavily in was around rim braking surfaces specifically. Um, and uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, we, it was the barrier to entry into carbon wheel aftermarket was really high because you had a very challenging uh, structure in, in, in the rim braking surface of a carbon rim. I mean, if you think about a, a wheel um, in carbon, I mean, you're asking a lot out of a wheel. You have the structure that your this rim is being pulled on by the spokes and the spokes have a lot of tension on them. Um, you're riding it. So you're, it's supporting your body weight. Every bump you hit, it's the wheels required to absorb that. <clears throat> and then you also have a tire on the rim that is uh, of course inflated to hundred at the time, you know, hundred, 100 to 120 psi in most people's situation and uh, and then on top of all that you're braking on the rim your rim is essentially the rotor and so you're braking on it which is uh, of course generating heat um, because that energy has to go somewhere and it's driven into the rim so now you're also driving heat into the rim which is warming up the air inside the tube which is then adding more force pushing out on the tire and so you know rim braking was really a big uh, a big engineering um project for Envy and was for the better half of the first eight years of our existence. And so with the onslaught of disc brakes in, how when did we kind of probably 2015 is kind of when we first started to see legitimate um, disc brake solutions for road. Um, you know, we, we immediately saw that like one of our major competitive advantages or at least one of the major barriers to entry in the wheel aftermarket was going to be removed in, in the near future. Um, so, I mean, since that time, you know, we've gone the, the after the carbon wheel aftermarket has gone from, uh, you know, a list of, you know, a pretty short or small list of reputable trustworthy brands to um, a much longer one at this point. Yeah, so um, I guess just going back a little bit, I remember tubular carbon wheels were obviously like, you know, they were pretty popular. Um, and, and I felt like a lot of brands had those, but I felt like those same brands struggled to go to a carbon clincher. Um, why was that? 
Yeah, again, um, even tubular to clincher is just such a different construction and and project for all the reasons I mentioned before, primarily the amount of heat you're driving into the rim. Mm-hmm. You know, on a tubular you have on a tubular you have the tire bed holding the two halves of the rim together. Um, whereas on a clincher they're separated and you have the two walls and then the tire bed. So you have this structure that needs to maintain its its the its position and structure. Mm-hmm. Even under heat it can't it can't splay open obviously under heat, which is what it wants to do. Oh. And so, so developing that is sort of a project in and of itself. And there's honestly, there's very little um, crossover between carbon clincher construction and carbon tubular construction. Um, one is just substantially simpler than the other. <laughs> and so uh, it requires a, it requires a, a, a huge resource allocation and commitment to transition from being a tubular manufacturer to a clincher manufacturer. And, uh, it's, it's challenging for sure. I mean, the big thing with Envy is we, I mean, we came to market with a tubular much faster than a clincher for that reason. But from day one, we were always going to make a carbon clincher. So, right. It seemed like that's what everyone kind of wants. It's just much easier to deal with. And, um, you know, it's a little less race day only kind of thing for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, talk a little bit about kind of just the, the R and D that goes into, you know, we're looking back a little bit still a little, you know, the R and D that goes into a rim breaking, like what, you know, you mentioned heat a little bit, but are there any other challenges? I mean, now that, uh, well, just for instance, how much did you guys spend? Would you guess on, on R and D for rim breaking for a carbon clincher? Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't even come up with, a number and whatever number I make up, I'm sure is wrong. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we, we, we legitimately spent seven years um, perfecting the craft of the heat proof rim break wow. rim. Um, you know, and through that process, we received uh, grants from the state of Utah. Um, we received, you know, we, we did some collaborations with uh, local university and their science department mm. Um and uh, there's also Utah's a hotbed for composites manufacturing. There's a lot of aerospace here, oh, yeah. and and as a result, there there's everything from carbon resin suppliers to the material itself. And so there's there's a lot of uh, carbon research happening in in Utah. And again, as a result of that, we had the opportunity to consult with and collaborate with a lot of really smart people. Um, even out you know they're outside the bike industry, but involved in composites to help solve this problem and. Um, or what was a problem at the time. And, uh, you know, ultimately we did, but it, again, it was, it was pretty much the number one, um, number one project, number one consumer of resources inside of Envy, other than just the growth of the company in right. general, in terms of uh, things we had to solve. Brake tracks was the number one um, project again for that seven or eight years. Yeah. So. That's fascinating because I mean, I've, I've ridden some, uh, carbon clinchers with bad brake tracks and it's just like, you know, they're almost unrideable. And, and we were yeah. talking about it a little <laughs> bit last week. The internet is not kind to bad brake tracks. I mean, you know, aside from, you know, just the fact that it doesn't feel good, there's, you know, there's some liability at play, right? I mean, you know, wheel oh, yeah. is so important. Um, it sounds like, I mean, one of the side effects is, is, you know, what could happen? What happens if it overheats? Um, just what do you, what has your experience been in those tests, <laughs> the bad tests? I mean, 
I mean, anything you could imagine can happen when you're, I mean, the, the, the rim channel itself is holding your tire on. And so any right. change to that dimension, um, you know, puts tire retention at risk. Right. And if your tire comes off unexpectedly, that's, you're that's done. not a good situation for anybody. So, right. um, I mean, that, that's, those are risks associated with, uh, with anything that changes, you know, that causes a change or damages the, the intended design or structure of the rim. Right. So it's almost like when yeah, you need I mean, it, you need it most is right when it's going to fail. I mean, you know, if you're braking hard, you're probably going fast, <laughs> <laughs> right? And that, that just kind of yeah. compounds the, the possibility for something nasty. Um, but we were also talking a little bit about uh, some of the risks inherent in disc brake. Um, you know, you know, we were talking about, how, okay, so now the rim brake thing is out of the, the question. You know, those seven years, obviously you put those to good use, but those seven years and those millions of dollars and the grants and all the science behind it, you know, another brand is not going to need to do all that anymore if they're going to make a disc brake only wheel. But at the same time, there's, there's still some risk um, with that disc brake, even though you guys aren't responsible for the surface itself. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, nothing, nothing is free. So simply eliminating the braking surface from the rim doesn't necessarily um, remove barrier to entry hundred percent. Um, I mean, it definitely lowers the barrier of entry substantially because again, it's a huge, it's a huge project. And it was, it's definitely not, it's definitely not information that brands who figured it out like Envy you know, it's not information we're necessarily going to put out there and share so that all right, their competitors can then go and replicate. Everybody's sort of left to their own devices because it was truly a, a competitive advantage. Right. And, you know, we were certainly, we, we certainly had, you know, our learning curve. And at the end, we had effectively solved the problem to the point where, you know, we knew we weren't going to see rims back for the damage. And then disc brakes came along. And uh, honestly, we were uniquely prepared for that as well, because again, a disc brake rim structure is different than a rim brake structure. And, and a lot of brands initially right out of the gate, just took their rim brake rim, um, either put a different decal on it or, <laughs> you know, or they covered the brake track or, um, just threw a disc brake hub in and left the brake track. But that was sort of the initial reaction that a lot of brands took to disc brake. Oh, um, and you know, so, I mean, that's fine, but what you end up with is not necessarily refined and, uh, a purpose-built structure for disc brake and being that Envy has been a disc brake specific rim manufacturer since day one, given that we've always been involved with mountain rims and every mountain rim we've ever produced, you know, mountain bikes made the transition to disc brake uh, well before Envy came into existence. And right. so our very first wheels we actually made were disc brake wheels um, for mountain bike because uh, simply because of the fact that we didn't have the brake track that we were still contending with. Right. So, um, yes, yeah, so we were uniquely positioned because, because we had basically seven years of disc brake specific rim construction and manufacturing under our belt when the road, when the road, when the pendulum swung towards disc brake on the road side of things. Um, and so what is different between disc brake and rim brake? Well, um, you know, with rim brake, you have to worry about tire retention and overheating of the brake track. Right. Um, with disc brake, you now have you basically now have to worry about spoke retention. Um, so you're driving a lot more force through the, through the spokes themselves um, as the uh, hubs winding up under braking. And so there's, there's a few considerations that you need to take. Um, Cause the, the bad thing there is you rip the spokes out of the rim, right? It's not that the tire comes off, yeah. right? I mean, not that that happens, but <laughs> it could, yeah. like if you do it wrong, 
And that's, I mean, probably almost worse than a tire coming off, right? I mean, that's pretty catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, again, with designing a rim properly is a huge, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of nuances and variables that have to be considered. And so, yeah, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, I'll introdu- introducing disc brakes just lower the barrier to entry, but there's still a lot of things that are taken into consideration. And really for Envy, the number one thing we saw the opportunity initially with disc brake specific rim construction was just that, is that we already knew how we could take a lot of weight out of a rim right. um, by allowing it to be disc brake specific. Um, weight that we had previously... Uh, previously applied to say the braking surface of a rim brake rim mm-hmm. could now be either removed or reallocated to a different structure of the rim, uh, say either the spoke face or to something to make the rim stronger, more durable. And so when we talk about like the benefits that have come to triathletes and all cyclists alike, um, as a result of disc brakes, um, you know, really what they have received is a stronger, lighter, more efficient rim structure. Mm. And we talked a little bit uh, last week too about about the spoke holes because just like, you know, the spokes sounds like they're taking a lot of the stress. Um, and I think at Envy, you said you guys do something a little bit different with that spoke hole. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So, I mean, again, carbon, carbon is best carrying load under tension. So, that's that's its superpower is its ability to carry load under tension and um, and so when you're considering a carbon rim you you know you're basically string and glue and uh, all those fibers are held together with the resin system which is effectively the glue and so if you know if my fingers here represented a if you interlock your fingers and that sort of represents a carbon laminate and then you were to go and drill a hole through there you would be cutting some of those threads. Um, which would effectively mean all your, at that point you're relying on just the epoxy resin or the glue to hold that shape and structure together. So what we've done at MB from the early days is we, we actually have a patent for molding the spoke holes into the rim. So each spoke hole is, um, is molded and not drilled. And that just means that oh, wow. our, what we're achieving is that each spoke hole has continuous fibers, um, running around it to carry the, the load from the spokes in the spoke tension. And, again, it just results in a lighter, um, stronger, more efficient rim structure. Right. But I would imagine that probably so, takes a lot more time, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just definitely more holes. time consuming. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a more time consuming process for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a little bit of our philosophy. So we, you know, if you're, you're drilling a rim, for example, you, your layup time or the amount of time it takes to put the carbon in the mold would be shorter than what we're doing because at that end of the spectrum, we're molding the rim and um, putting all the holes in it and, and everything. Right. Um, so up front, ours takes more time, but on the back end, our finishing time is is less because now we're not, you know, once the rim comes out of the mold, it's cured. We're not spending, you know, we're not, we're still spending time, but we're not spending as much, you know, the time drilling the holes. So uh, okay. it kind of, kind of evens out, but um, we, we like to, again, with, we like to mold as much as we can into the rim. We like mm. to drill or cut as little as possible mm. uh, just because it makes for a better structure. So, okay. well, that makes, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, going back just a little bit, you mentioned how Envy started with mountain and mountain disc. Um, so my instinct is a mountain disc wheel needs to be stronger um, under the braking surfaces, but, or I'm sorry, braking forces. Um, but that's not quite true, right? 
Um, not necessarily. Again, yeah, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, on the road, you more or less have endless traction. Um, you know, there's a ton of friction between pavement and asphalt and the rubber on your tire. Um, so when you grab a handful of brakes, you know, the amount of force it takes to break that, um, break that, that uh, tire from the road and cause it to skid is, is quite a bit more than what you would typically see on a mountain bike, given that you're on a slippery surface, it's dirt or it's dust on rock or loose rock, loose dust, loose dirt. Um, so yeah, generally speaking, the amount of force it takes to break the, the tread free from the ground is going to be potentially less. Um, possibly less on the road or on the mountain than it would be on the road. Right. Yeah. It's funny because your instinct is like, okay, well, a mountain wheel obviously takes a lot of abuse, you know, in terms of, you know, the up and down forces and just like, you know, running off things. And so you'd assume, you know, road wheels are just delicate and, you know, they don't need to be that tough. But, but what you're saying is in terms of just braking forces that the road wheel actually needs to be able to, to hang on tighter when you're, when you're hitting those brakes, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, potentially. Um, and again, like on a mountain bike, you have suspension, which drives different forces through a wheel on a road bike. You don't have suspension other than your body and the very small tire, you know, that's kind of, so again, there, there's the, you, a road rim still has to withstand a, a tremendous amount of, um, force and strength, uh, you know, from, it needs to be tremendously strong in terms of smashing a pothole, and because right. again, you're, you're, you're doing it on an unsuspended bike and uh, a very light rim structure. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, experience that goes into the construction of a lightweight carbon road rim. Cause they do, we, we are still asking a lot from a road rim. Um, even though the, the terrain and the amplitude of like what's happening on a mountain bike is, is much greater. There's, there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of forces being driven into a road wheel. And just to kind of deviate again a little bit, sorry, I just keep getting off track. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so like just for triathletes listening right now who are maybe slightly familiar with discs um, and disc braking, I know like, for instance, a mountain disc setup and a mountain rotor sometimes be larger. Um, why is a mountain rotor larger? Why are there different, you know, size rotors even on tri bikes right now? Um. I mean, you're basically dealing with two different rotor sizes, 140 millimeter and 160 millimeter. And, you know, of course the 140, 140 millimeter rotor is going to be lighter um, and it's smaller diameter. So it has that going for it. It really, I mean, I've, I had personally have bikes with 140 rotors and bikes with 160 rotors and, you know, I prefer the 160 rotors for mountainous train where you're going to be braking heavier and harder um, right. and there's higher propensity for heat buildup. Because oh, okay. um, as you heat that rotor, they, you know, if, they get, if the system gets really hot, um, say you're riding the Alps a lot or doing something that has like a lot of big descending or technical descending, which the Alps are really sort of that situation. Right. Um, we have less of it in the U S but there, it certainly exists. But, uh, you know, those situations where you have to worry about heat buildup, um, the larger rotor is going to help dissipate that heat quicker. Um, it's going to provide you just more braking power, right. um, where the 140 rotor for like, you know, a triathlete per se. Um, and I'm not speaking from any, I, I don't know off the top of my head, sort of the differences in terms of aerodynamic performance between a 140 and a 160. So I can't really speak to that. Right. 
Um, but just from a pure braking performance standpoint, you know, a, a triathlete uh, on a relatively flat course um, with very limited braking, you know, 140 rotors are going to be sufficient for right. 90% of triathlons. Yeah, no, I know. And I've, I actually, it's funny. I've seen a lot of tri bikes with 160 and, you know, I would echo the same thing. I'm like, you know, we're not really doing a lot of high mountain tries and, you know, with a lot of crazy passes or anything like that. So yeah, for me, sometimes the 160 feels a little bit like overkill, but, um, but yeah, so you're saying that the heat buildup, so just again, triathletes are like maybe not so familiar with disc wheels. When you say the heat buildup on the, the disc rotor, um, what happens when the heat builds up? What do you feel? What, what goes on there? Um, yeah. So, I mean, as you're braking and you know, the rotor continues to heat up, it eventually the, the whole system starts to heat up and, um, again, I'm not a disc brake expert, but I believe what happens is, is you begin to heat, you actually take the oil or the fluid inside the brake lines to basically the point where it's boiling, oh. um, where it gets really hot and it can start to create a vapor. And so you'll actually, your brakes will start to fade or not feel as powerful because now you're not compressing fluid. You're compressing fluid oh. with gas or vapors trying to form inside of it. And so it'll just get a little, um, spongier feeling. Okay. Um, but more than anything, like, I think that's, that's sort of on the very extreme end, right. um, on the more common end, you're going to start hearing your, your, your rotor squill, um, right. and, uh, making horrible noises and, <laughs> uh, being, and just generally being less effective. So you'll feel right. your braking power start to fade, uh, as it hits a certain temperature. And so, okay. um, again, just, there's a, there, it's always good to feather brakes and uh, right. try not to drag your brakes just to allow the rotors to cool in the air as much as possible between heavy braking situations. So, Good good tip for triathletes. Yeah. We all hate to hear that <laughs> yeah, squealing exactly. brake. Um, cool. So sorry about the deviation under the disc brakes, but yeah, a lot of our listeners might not be super familiar with, um, you know, just disc brake talk. So I think that's very helpful. Um, but kind of circling way back to uh what we originally got on about um just kind of how prices and cost have reduced we talked about the barrier to entry um so we're finding more brands now doing wheels for cheaper um but envy has really kind of personified this trend with the release of a new line um that actually just kind of caught my interest and made me start thinking about how much cheaper um you know wheel brands are able to go especially with disc brakes um so Jake, talk a little bit about um, the foundation line and more specifically how you guys were able to reduce price and, and then some, you know, Envy is a brand that's known for a high end wheel. Um, so yeah. How did the whole foundation system come about? Yeah, no worries. Um, so I, again, you kind of have to go back to our founding. Envy's original goal was only and ever to make the absolute best carbon products we could, you know, being that we were a company that started from scratch, we didn't have any sort of long seated investments in tooling or anything like that. So we were basically able to start and say like, if we're going to make, you know, the wheel, we all dream of riding, you know, what does it look like and what do we do? And so that's where concepts like the molded spoke holes, which is a process. And what you learn about carbon is it's, you know, the material is the material and um, you know, about anybody can buy the same material we're buying, but it's all about the process. It's much like, it's much like, um, somebody baking a loaf of bread, for example, like there's artisan bread in the world and then there's wonder bread and they're, they're very different prices, right? It's like, you can make the argument, why would you ever pay $6 for a loaf of bread when you can pay 79 cents for a loaf of wonder bread? Right. Um, you know, they both are flour, water, salt, some yeast or whatever. And so there's these common ingredients per se, but 
it really comes down to, you know, what is, what is the process behind it? What is the, um, what is, what is happening in the manufacturing? And that's kind of what carbon is. Um, you can liken carbon to that sort of scenario where you're baking with a certain amount of ingredients, but it's all about the process and the time and how it's, and how it's manipulated. And, um, and you were so, saying, and sorry to interrupt a little bit, but yeah, um, you're talking about the flour and the water, and those are cheap ingredients, right, for bread. And so just giving us a ballpark, and you don't even have to say envy, but, you know, how much are materials, the, you know, the flour and the water for a carbon wheel generally? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking just the carbon itself, um, I mean, it could be anywhere from $30 to maybe a little over 100 bucks potentially, and oh, wow. or 200, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I mean, you're... You could be, yeah, you're, you could basically be in that, you know, sub $50 to around $200 range for just the raw materials itself that go into, go into a rim. Oh, um, but what really, what really drives the cost of carbon is that it's, it's handmade. So there's very right. little automation that can be performed in terms of manufacturing of carbon. So there's no robots. There is, <laughs> there, there are literally people that are, you know, taking the rolls of carbon fiber that have been, um, so the carbon comes to us in big rolls that is pre, it's called pre-preg. So that just means that it's carbon with the resin system, epoxy resins already injected into the materials. And so mm-hmm. um, other than we have some, uh, we have some uh, cutting machines that cut the, cut the fiber into the shapes and the widths and the lengths we need it to be cut into. Um, everything else is done by hand. So carbon manufacturing is very much a labor intensive uh, activity. Um, additionally, there's tooling and the equipment, ovens, all the things that are involved in actually, you know, producing, right. uh, a product. So, you know, when we're NB, as NB and we started up, you know, it was always to make the best product we possibly could, uh, regardless of the cost. So basically we figured out what stuff cost and then the retail price followed, um, <laughs> once we had the product that we wanted and it was never really our intention to be an exclusive or, uh, I mean, we always wanted to be premium in terms of the ride quality and the pro- quality of the product we produced, but it was never necessarily our intention to be, you know, like a Ferrari, you know, to be sort of exclusive <laughs> and accessible by, by only a few. Um, I don't know, was, the name probably, suggests otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was years, and you know that, yeah, the years later, I mean, we started out as our, you know, we started out as edge composites and right. as we became a real business doing you know, business in other parts of the world, we you know, that led to the name change. But, you know, at that time, you know, we did change the name to Envy because we did want, um, we did, we did know where we stood in the world in terms of being a premium product. And we did want people to aspire to, um, you know, having the best. And we, you know, believe that everything, the decisions we make would result in the best product that's out there. And so we, we of course have had many requests over the years to make a more affordable product. And we have, tried a variety of different ways to accomplish that. Um, everything from simply installing less expensive hubs into the system um, and different spokes, but that was really kind of the two levers we had to pull. Right. Um, and, you know, other options were always to take old technology and trickle it down to a lower price point. And that also never really felt um, authentic, you know, especially given that, you know, yeah, we had so many customers who of course paid uh, paid the retail price when the product was, you know, brand new. And it's, and it's, uh, you know, when it was brand new, they paid, they paid full price for it. 
to only, you know, three years later, um, say, well, that product's been superseded and now you can get it for half off. Yeah. Nobody likes that. That was never really, that was never really a thing. And, and on the same, in the same vein, it wasn't costing us any less to produce that product, even though it was three years old, it still cost the same. So generally speaking, MV has always superseded and canceled the previous product, um, you know, in favor of the latest, greatest technology. And so as we progressed, um, we have always had the desire to make something more affordable, to make and be more accessible to more people. And we've just been looking at way, it's just been an evaluation of how we're going to do it. And the other thing that never really sat right to us was to intentionally um, make a worse rim to dumb down our, our tech. Right. And an example of that would be per se, like making a rim, but not molding the spoke holes into it. Right. right or right. which which oddly enough would probably cost us more money to do that because we've invested so heavily in a manufacturing um, environment and machinery and everything. So to do the opposite, to drill holes, we would have to invest in equipment to make a worse rim for say. So we, you'd have to get the driller and all that stuff. Yeah. We have to set up the machines and everything and you know, it's, and it's a new process and that also didn't really feel right to us. And uh, so about 18 months to two years ago, we started to, so part of this journey in the story is that uh, Envy uh, moved into a new manufacturing facility going on four years now, it'll be four years in October. Um, and c- again, carbon manufacturing is all about the process. And anytime you change anything in that process, it takes a while to work out um, the kinks. And, and that's, uh, that, that facility is in the U.S., right? Yeah, we're we're based. Yep, we're based here in Ogden, Utah. Right, so which is unique. Salt Lake. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is unique for sure. Um, and uh, you know, early on, there was a lot of pressure from outside consultants and friends saying, you know, you need to move outside of, and you're going to need to take your manufacturing outside of the U.S. if you want to um, succeed in this aftermarket wheel business. But we always felt that there was too much at risk to move to move our IP out of the U S and we also liked that we make things like we, we have a very intimate and close relationship with our product. It's not that we just design something and send a design packet over to Asia for our wheels. We, we, we basically come up with the idea engineering, you know, creates a prototype and, you know, we're, we can be writing a new concept within a couple of weeks, really, if we're really focused and excited about an idea. So U.S. manufacturing for Envy is really about being dynamic and having um, a really rapid innovation cycle because of it. So, well, and you, you mentioned risks of sending um, your intellectual property IP, just for listeners who aren't up on that. Um, what kind of risk would be involved in that? I mean, that sounds kind of scary to me. <laughs> <laughs> well... I mean, it's not necessarily a quality risk, but it is um, protecting what's yours, like what we've worked hard to develop and define over the years. So especially when I, when we were talking about rim brakes, it's like we spent, we spent seven or eight years, you know, developing carbon laminates, working with specific material suppliers, resin um, suppliers to design a rim that was heat proof. And so if you have that process um, defined and you've invested so heavily and then you take it over to Asia, you, you lose control of that process. You, you most most of the manufacturers in Asia are shared with competitors, and so you don't really know who's walking through the factory that day. You don't, you know, and and the the manufacturer's job there is to make a great product. And so, if one manufacturer, or if one if there's multiple brands 
being manufactured in one factory, it's in that factory's best interest to make the best thing for everybody because that keeps everybody happy. And so while they're not necessarily out there to like screw you as a brand per <laughs> se, that there's, it's in their best interest to say, well, hey, you know, I, brand B, I know you're struggling with this. Well, we've done this with brand A uh, and brand A is successfully doing this. And so maybe we can, you know, we won't call it what they do, but we'll put it into this prop, you know, into this wheel. And so they have the same properties and everybody's happier because it's easier for us to manufacture or right. it's less return rate or whatever it is. And so, so all that stuff um, that you spent years on could just pop into the Xerox copier and, you know, end up in yeah. some some other brand, yeah, but they call it something different, right? Oh, that's interesting. Sure. Very interesting. So that's, that's a possibility. Um, I mean, there's, there's always sort of, I mean, it's less now and it, that's, it sort of depends on where and who, and it's more about being with a reputable factory, but you can certainly see, um, you know, backdoor product going out to right. that, you know, is, you know, ends up on whatever website right, for right, right. fractions of the price. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's risks like that. I mean, you know, the, the bike industry is, is thriving and it's, you know, the, in Asian manufacturing or overseas manufacturing is, is, um, much, much of that success. So it's not to disparage any of the work that's being done over there because it's great. Right. And we, we also manufacture a fair amount of our components, um, overseas, but with Will specifically where we've invested so heavily and it is our core, um, it is our core product line. And we, you know, it's, it's just, it's what keeps us excited about the work we do is, you know, being able to make the stuff we want to and being able to do it fast and having control over the process and be able to iterate so quickly. Right. And that sort of leads us back to the idea of, well, how did we get to um, the foundation wheel line, which right. is a, you know, more accessible price point. And so, you know, in recent years, since we've, you know, like I said, we've been in our new facility for going on four years. Now, the first two years were very heavily, I'm focused on working out kinks. We had, you know, scrap rates that had to be brought into adjustment. Um, you know, and what's the scrap last, rate just for our, our listeners? Scrap rates, just the number of wheels, the percentage of what you manufacture that can't be sold. So, <laughs> so it's just like the throwaways. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, in some cases, throwaways, in some cases, just wheels that are cosmetically not, uh, not up to par with where they need to be. And so, you know, you can't sell them. Maybe they get used for, uh, you know, testing or sponsorship or something else. And they're, but they're just not cosmetically good enough to end up on a retail floor. Right. right okay. um, so that's what we call our scrap rate. Okay. Um, so, you know, the lower your scrap rate gets, the more efficient you are as a manufacturer, um, which, which opens up uh, capacity to sort of do more. And so the better we get at doing our job, um, the more opportunity there is to bring um, volume into the factory. And so that was a huge factor in terms of introducing something that is uh, at a lower price point, because the assumption would be that if we introduce something at a lower price point, we're going to sell more of it because there's more people that can afford it. Right. Um, and so that's, that's always been one thing that's kind of held us back from getting serious about a more uh, price, you know, more price except or a lower price point. Um, and then the other thing was just, what is what are the features and the technology we're going to include in the rim and you know as we've gotten better at making rim structures and understanding carbon laminates etc uh we basically figured out a way i mean obviously with an effort to basically reduce the manufacturing layup time um substantially so you know for so what example does that, what does that look like when you say time um yeah so 
Yeah, yeah. So we're talking labor. So I mean, one our one of our largest drivers in terms of the cost of wheels labor. So anything we can do to reduce labor in in the product is going to result in the greatest net cost savings. Oh, and so, so you know, we're looking at how long it takes to put carbon in the mold. So for example, if it takes if it took us say an hour to make one SES rim, you know, we're we were looking at ways to basically do the same amount of work in say 30 minutes oh, wow. um, or 25 minutes. So that's effectively what we've um, been able to do with foundation is we've looked at the whole process and we've said, okay, we're envy anybody that buys envy at any price point, we want to make sure they're having the best ride experience possible. So, right. so what features um, must remain and what features and benefits must remain in this core product um, because it will become the core product given the price point. Um, that we want everybody to experience. And so in, as we specifically looked at aero wheels, we said, okay, um, we're going to simplify the line because another huge expense or cost for envy is just carrying inventory right. um, and the complexity, which is carrying, carrying cost. And so if you look at our SES wheel line, every rim has its own mold. So the rim shapes and depths are different front to back, which is a, right. you know, kind of our competitive um, differentiator. It does net a faster wheel that doesn't compromise stability and all of that. That's what um, a lot of we're talking about, want. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about very incremental gains though. We're not talking about a 50% improvement over say the competitor's product. That's the same shape and depth front to back. It's typically like less than a 5% gain right. or around a 5% gain, depending on who the product, maybe as much as 10, depending on who the competitor is. But, you know, as we're looking at foundation, we were saying, oh, we said, okay, well, we can honestly reduce our costs substantially by just having one mold for each for the front and back rim. So we said, okay, what's the best rim shape that basically accomplishes 99% of the tasks that an SES wheel does um, with one rim shape. So that's, so if you look at our foundation wheels, we have the, the 45 and the 65, uh, those wheels share rim shape front to back. So right. you're, we're able to reduce costs there. Um, the actual shape of the rims themselves are a hybrid between the front and the rear shape of an SES wheel, for example. So we basically, it's kind take of a compromise. The, yeah. You I mean, you're basically taking, here's the front shape, here's the rear shape, mash them together, right. find that average shape. And you know, what is, what does that result in? And, right. and that's kind of what, uh, what we're able to, to do there. Um, but again, the result on the road is one that it's a very stable rim. It's aerodynamically very fast still. And the reality is, is that it's even at the price point of, so our foundation wheel line comes in at $1,600 and our goal was right. to make the absolute best wheel set on the market for $1,600. Um, the reality is, is that they ride better than a lot of $3,000 wheel sets on the market. Right. And that's, and that's not because, um, I mean, that, that's because we're basically just taking that, that SDS rim shape and, and just figuring out how to do it for a little bit less money. Right. Um, but in a way that doesn't compromise how the wheel rides. And then as far as the rim structure itself, the layup time or the amount of labor that goes into it is reduced dramatically. Um, so again, we're basically uh, cutting costs where they don't affect the ride quality. Right. Right. Um, and that's kind of been the whole, that's kind of the balancing act with, with the foundation line that's giving, and that's where the name come from. It's about providing all of our foundational technologies that foundational MB experience um basically for as little cost as possible so that's awesome well i think all of our listeners probably think that's a good thing um definitely making you know getting more 
NV wheels on more people's bikes, especially now, you know, with everyone kind of tightening their budgets. Um, obviously you guys didn't see the current situation coming, but, um, but you know, for sure it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing to have a, a, a less expensive option. Um, well, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I feel like our listeners probably got just like, you know, not even carbon wheel 101 it's like carbon wheel 901 like an advanced master course and <laughs> carbon wheels and disc braking so triathletes no longer have any excuses for not understanding disc brakes or you know uh, why they're important um, but they're gonna probably know a lot more about what's underneath them so thank you again for joining us um and and good luck with uh with the rest of what uh nv is gonna have to offer in the next couple of years okay thank you thanks jake <laughs>